All right, open your Bibles with me to the book of Matthew. Come with me to the book of Matthew. Our sermon today is titled, Talking About a Revolution. Talking About a Revolution. Matthew chapter 1. And uh, just spend a little bit of time here uh, sort of setting the stage. I'm sometimes asked if you could preach one sermon. If you just had one sermon to preach, what would that sermon be? And that's not an easy question. It's like asking a chef, if you had one meal that you could prepare, what would that meal be? Well, it would depend on situation and context and a variety of other factors. But the, the presentation I want to give to you today is something that the Lord showed me in my Bible study probably 15 years ago, a long time ago, not long after I became a follower of Jesus. And over the years, my understanding of this has been increased. It's, it's just really so near and dear to me that this would probably be one of the two or three sermons that would be in the final running of what I would present if I just had one sermon to present, one thing that I could say to a general audience or to a general group of people. And uh, you will be aware, if you're a member of this church, that we've completed, oh, about a year ago, a series all the way through the book of Matthew, right? We went right through the book of Matthew. And what we're going to do now is we're going to orient ourselves again to the book of Matthew. And come with me to Matthew chapter 1. Now, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, begins like this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, right? And so, right in Matthew chapter 1, implicit within the New Testament story, the story of Jesus, is a basic understanding and a basic awareness of the Old Testament, right? You'll sometimes hear people say things like, I'm a New Testament Christian, or I don't spend a lot of time in the Old Testament, etc., etc. And they say this almost with a kind of piety, like, no, I'm a New Testament Christian. But the very first chapter, first verse of the first book of the New Testament assumes a basic awareness of the Old Testament story. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Right? So you're going to ask a number of questions there. Who is Abraham? Who is David? And there is an assumed familiarity. Matthew is writing, most scholars believe Matthew is writing to a largely Jewish audience. And if not an entirely Jewish audience, at least an audience that would be conversant in the basic story of Israel, the basic Jewish story. And, and two of the soaring mountain peaks in the Jewish story are Abraham and David. You're not going to be able to tell the history of Israel without telling the story of Abraham or the story of David. And so right there at the outset, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, what, what Matthew begins his gospel with is this, the book of the beginnings, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. You, you must know at some level the Old Testament story, the Israel story, the Jewish story, in order to get your fingers wrapped around what Matthew's going to talk about over the next 28 chapters. Now, fast forward through all of those begats. We have all this so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and come down to Matthew's own summary of the Old Testament in verse 17. Matthew chapter 1, verse 17. This is a theological and really simple summary of the Old Testament. Right? And it's not David Asherick's summary of the Old Testament, and it's not my church's summary of the Old Testament. This is Jesus' summary of the Old Testament. We find it in verse 17. Matthew says, or this is Matthew's uh, summary of the Old Testament, heading toward Jesus. He says, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David until the captivity in Babylon, they're 14 generations, and from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ, or the Messiah, are 14 generations. So what Matthew just did is really helpful, and it would have made a lot of sense to a Jewish audience. He says there's three groups of 14. There's a 14, not groups, but three sets, so the three uh, numbers, 14. A 14, a 14, and a 14. 
The first 14 goes from Abraham to David. We've talked about this right in this very church in the past. The next goes from David to the carrying away of, uh, uh, of Israel into Babylonian captivity and Assyrian captivity. And then the next one is from that carrying away to Messiah. So you have a 14, a 14, and a 14. And any Jew would immediately see what's going on here. If you have three 14s, what you have is a 7, a 7, a 7, a 7, and a 7, and a 7. Right? And any Jew would be immediately aware, whoa, if we have six sevens, we're on the verge of what the Jews called the Jubilee, right? Which is the year after seven groups of sevens. You have seven, 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 and the next year was the Jubilee. And the Jubilee was this economic, grace-filled institution in the Jewish economy that kind of went like this. All of the slaves or employees were set free, all of the debts were forgiven, and the ancestral land was returned to its, to its people, right? You, you could only lease land in Israel's economy, and so all of those ancestral lands went back to their original ancestral owners. So people looked forward to the Jubilee, and the way that the Jubilee was scheduled every 50 years most people would experience at least one in their life, right? And so when Matthew says from Abraham to David and from David to the captivity and from the captivity to the Messiah is a 14, a 14, and a 14, he's saying there's a 7, a 7, a 7, a 7, a 7, and a 7. The Jew, any Jewish reader is immediately thinking, whoa, we are approaching, we are nearing a jubilee. We are coming right up on the seventh seven. Now, if we had time, which we don't this morning, we could go to Daniel chapter 9 and we could take a look at that seventh seven. We could spend a lot of time there. But for our purposes here, what Matthew is setting up here is something that is absolutely... I, I, I'm going to try to paint the picture here. Matthew's not just telling the story of this wise proverbial teacher that sort of landed in history at some willy-nilly serendipitous time. Matthew is telling a very specific story. It's a story of calculation. It's a story of preparation. It's a story of context and of situation. Things are heading somewhere. History is not just sort of floating serendipitously, you know, willy-nilly without aim or reason. No, there's a trajectory, there's a directionality to history. And the way that Matthew tells the story is he says, look, Abraham to David, David to the captivity, captivity to the Messiah. History is going somewhere. And where it's going, according to Matthew, is it's going to Messiah. Something about the arrival of the Christ in the Greek or Mashiach in the Hebrew. It's, it's coming to the place of deliverer. Now, what Matthew does over the next several chapters, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, he paints a story that many Bible interpreters have noted, I myself being one of them, that what Matthew is painting here is the story of Jesus' own personal and purposeful recapitulation of Israel's national history. I want to say that again. Matthew was painting a story, and the story looks like this. Israel had a history, national Israel, Abraham, David, that whole story. That, there's a story there, right? The 14, 14, 14. And now what Jesus is going to do, and the story that Matthew was going to tell, is how Jesus recapitulated or redid, restated, reviewed the very history of Israel in his own actions. Okay, now take a look up here on the screen and I'll show you this. I'll give you just 15 quick incidences or, or examples of Jesus recapitulating the history of national Israel and we'll see why this is important and where we're going. Okay, our sermon today is titled Talking About a Revolution. Okay, I want you just to hear this if you're familiar with the Old Testament story, the Abrahamic story, the Davidic story, the Jewish story. Just tell me if this is that story. Okay, number one, a man named Joseph has dreams. 
Okay, that's how the story begins. Not exactly how the story begins, but in terms of the parallels with the life of Jesus, there's a parallel. Jesus' earthly father, the, the betrothed husband of Mary, has dreams. Number two, those dreams lead them into Egypt. Just as with Joseph in the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and one of the sons of Jacob was Joseph. He had dreams, and the dreams led them into Egypt, where they remained in Egypt for a specific time. Jesus, similarly, a, 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 an angel appeared to Joseph and said, take the little child into Egypt, which is where they went. They remain in Egypt for a specific time, but then number four, they are called out of Egypt. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph were called out of Egypt in the same way that Israel of old was called out of Egypt by God through Moses, tell Pharaoh to let my people, what? Let my people go. Okay, then number five, a death prepares the way for them to come out of Egypt. In what way did a death prepare the, the ancient Israelites to come out of Egypt? Well, the answer is the death of the firstborn, the tenth most terrible plague that fell on Egypt because Pharaoh hardened his heart and he was reluctant to, to accommodate God's reasonable request. And so there was a series of ever-increasing plagues. And the tenth most terrible plague was the death of the firstborn. And so that death prepared the way for Israel to leave Egypt. Can somebody tell me, what is the death? that prepares the way for Jesus, Mary, and Joseph to leave Egypt. It was the death of Herod. The angel comes and appears to Joseph and says, Herod is dead. The, the one that was trying to kill the child is dead now. You can leave. And so in both cases, the death prepares the way out of Egypt. They passed through the water. When ancient Israel left Egypt, they passed through the Red Sea. Jesus is depicted in Matthew chapter 3 as Matthew is telling this very Jewish story. And we're going to see why in just a second. He's telling the story, and the next thing that happens in Matthew chapter 3, after the whole Matthew 2 story, which is the, you know, the traditional Christmas story, Jesus is baptized. He passes through the waters. Number seven, Jesus is referred to as my son. This is my son in whom I am well pleased, God says. That's the very same thing, well, analogous thing that happened back in ancient Israel. When God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, what he said was, Tell Pharaoh to let my son go. So Israel is the son of God, and Jesus is the son of God. Where did they go? Well, they passed through the Red Sea, and they wandered into the wilderness. Where did Jesus go after his baptism in Matthew chapter 3? In Matthew chapter 4, he goes into the wilderness. How long were they in the wilderness? Their original journey, the Israelites' original journey toward Mount Sinai, the Bible says took about a month. And there's good reason to believe it would have taken 40 days. Jesus went into the wilderness for how many days? 40 days. When Israel does not obey the command of God to go into Canaan and to take Canaan, they will remain in the wilderness, not for 40 days merely, but for 40 what? 40 years. And so Jesus, when he's in the wilderness for 40 days, he's recapitulating. He's, he's redoing. He's replaying the history of his own people from Abraham to David and from David to the captivity and from the captivity to Messiah. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene, again, I, I need to make this point very clear. It's not just some willy-nilly Jesus says, hey, I think we'll go here today and I think I'll say this and now I'll heal this person. No, no, no. There is great intentionality. It's as if Jesus knows that he is following very specifically and very precisely a template. The things that he's doing, there's purpose, there's intent. He's following a specific story. What's the story that he's following? Well, Matthew says he's following the story of his people, of our people, of Israel. Now, notice this. Number 10, 
When the Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years, they were given the book of Deuteronomy, which is the fifth book of the Bible, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And the word Deuteronomy just means the second law. It means the second law. And fascinatingly, when Jesus was in the wilderness and Satan comes to him with those three temptations, cast yourself down, make these stones into bread and bow down and worship me. In each case, Jesus quotes what? He quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. Okay, so we see this recapitulation. Five more quickly. They came to a mountain. In Matthew chapter 5, after the baptism of Matthew, or excuse me, after the wilderness experience of Matthew chapter 4, Jesus comes to a mountain. They came to Mount Sinai, but Jesus comes to the Mount of Blessing, where he preaches a sermon, sometimes called the Sermon on the Mount. Very good. Number 12, God meets with them on the mountain, both ancient Israel and now God is meeting in the person of Jesus with the people on the mountain. The law was given to ancient Israel from the mountain. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above the earth, beneath or the waters under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. Right? You, you, the law is given. Here Jesus, standing on a mountain, as God, as Yahweh, as the lawgiver, says things like this. You have heard... You shall not commit adultery. But I say, he repeats that refrain, that revolutionary refrain, talking about a revolution. He repeats that refrain six times. You have heard, but I say. You have heard, but I say. You have heard, but I say. Here Jesus sets himself in, in hostility, even at, at, he sets himself in an adversarial relationship to the religious leaders of his day. You have been being taught, but I say something else. You have heard, but I say. You have been told and taught, but I say. Which would have led people to say, who does this guy think he is? In the same way that the law was given from Mount Sinai's summit, the law is given here from the Sermon on the Mount's summit. The heart of the law in, in, in the Old Testament was to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says that. Paul says that. The whole law, all of the Torah... All of the Ten Commandments boil down to this basic axiom, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. All of what I'm saying to you boils down to this basic, this one basic idea, to love God supremely and to love your neighbor genuinely. And then finally, the plan, and 15 is the only one here that did not actually eventuate in ancient Israel but it does eventuate in Jesus' recapitulation of the story. The plan for God calling Egypt was not just that he could have or Israel out of Egypt, was not just that he could have this little proprietary group of people that he could pamper and flatter and give special treatment to. Oh, you're better than them. You're more important than them. You're No. He called them out for a specific purpose, the Abrahamic purpose that is all the way back in the book of Genesis. He says, I will bless you, Abraham, and you will be a blessing. I will bless you and you will be a blessing. Can the church say amen? So the purpose was so that this beautiful truth, this beautiful Jewish truth, right, of the goodness of God and who God is and all of the things wrapped up in all of the spiritual gift that God gave to the Jews, the purpose was so they could bestow that gift on the non-Jewish nations or the Gentile nations. Now that did not happen largely in the history of Israel. But it does happen in Jesus. In fact, this is fascinating. Watch this. So we have Matthew chapter 1, which is the 14, the 14, the 14. Then we have Matthew chapter 2, which is like kind of the Christmas story that we're familiar with, that we celebrate traditionally in December 
right? Then we have Matthew 3, which is the baptism of Jesus, right? Then we have Matthew 4, which is the temptation of Jesus. Now watch this. Then we have Matthew 5, 6, 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount. We together, everyone? Now look at Matthew chapter 8. Just take a quick look at Matthew chapter 8. What is the very first thing that happens when Jesus comes, quote, down from the mountain? When Jesus comes down from the mountain, what is the first thing that happens? Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him and said, if you are, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus cleanses a leper. An outcast. Someone who was isolated, ostracized. Someone who was seemingly cut off from God. And what happens is, is Jesus extends the blessing, the goodness, the grace of Yahweh to a leper. Look at the very next thing that happens. Verse 5. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading and said, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And he said, hey, I will come and heal him. I'm in Matthew chapter 8, verse 8. The centurion answered him and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go. And he goes and another come and he comes. And to my servant, do this. And he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled, and he said to all those who followed, watch this carefully. Jesus is about 30 years old at this point, right? So he's seen quite a bit, right? right? This isn't his first rodeo, and he's so thrilled, he's so blessed and surprised by what he hears. Look at verse, the last part of verse 10. Assuredly, I say to you, I have, not sound, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel, in the chosen people, the covenant people, the descendants of Abraham, I have not seen faith like this. Now what's next is absolutely amazing. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into, or excuse me, verse 11. But I say to you that many will come from the east and the west. That's a Jewish way of saying from way over there and way over there. Gentiles. Not only does Jesus affirm a Gentile, man, I've not seen faith like this in the whole of God's covenant people. But then what he says is, let me tell you something, because people would have been like, oh, what an affirmation from a so-called Messiah figure of a Gentile. And he says, you think this is shocking? Many will come from the east and the west and will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. The placement of this and the significance of this is absolutely amazing because what's happening? Jesus, as he comes down from the mountain, he heals a leper, an outcast, an ostracized, isolated person. Number one. Number two, he speaks affirmingly not only of a Gentile, no, 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 not just any ordinary Gentile. He speaks affirmingly, in fact, in the strongest possible language of a man who was a Gentile, who was a Roman, who was a soldier, and who was a leader of soldiers. So there was every reason to hate this guy, if you were a Jew, every reason to look down on this guy, four reasons at least, Gentile, Roman, soldier, leader of soldiers. And yet Jesus says, I've not seen faith like this in the whole of Israel. And when people are a little bit surprised, that seems to be implicit in the text. Jesus says, you think this is surprising? Many will come from over there, and many will come from over there, and will sit down with him. Look at what Jesus does. Will sit down with who? With who? Abraham, Isaac, and, in other words, the fathers, the forefathers of the very Jewish nation. Because what's happening is, is that Jesus here is doing the thing that the original Abrahamic promise was intended to do. When, when God appeared to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, he said, I will bless you, 
and you will be a blessing. It wasn't a parochial, insular little, oh, these are my people that I will pamper and pet and flatter and take care of uniquely from others. No, he called them for a purpose. I've said it this way before in this church, not merely to give the truth to them, but to give the truth through them. Not just to give them the Sabbath to them, but to give the Sabbath through them. Not just to give the sanctuary to them, but to give the sanctuary through them. To give the great truth of who God is through them to who? To who? To who? To, who? to the non-Jewish people. And so get this in your mind. I just want you to feel the shape of this. Right? Matthew chapter 1 is the 14, the 14, and the 14. 2 is the Christmas story. 3 is the baptism, the passing through the Red Sea. 4 is the 40 days in the wilderness. 5, 6, 7 is the New Testament Sinai, the receiving of the law. And what happens immediately when Jesus leaves the New Testament Sinai? He begins to spread the blessing of God's good news, Yahweh's good news, to Gentile people, outcast people, lepers and centurions. Can the church say Amen. Friends, what, what's going on here? Again, Jesus is not just doing things serendipitously, fly by the seat of his pants. No, Jesus, and Matthew's telling this story very purposefully and very passionately, Jesus is retracing a story that's already happened. And the story that's already happened is the story of his own people, the story of Abraham, the story of David, the story of the Israel, Israelite people. Jesus is telling that story. But he's not telling the story like sitting down and say, come to the children's story, come to the front. He's telling the story through his life. And Matthew's riding up to tell the story. Now, the reason that Jesus has to do this is that the great truth of the story, the story of God's goodness, that story has been misunderstood. It's been forgotten. Let me just press pause on this for a second. The Bible is not, as many people think it is, the Bible think, oh, the Bible is, the Bible contains the truth, which certainly it does. But the way that a lot of people think about the Bible is like the Bible is a kind of doctrinal handbook, right? Like you have a question, the Bible has the answer. Like what happens when you die? Well, the Bible has the answer. And you go find the place. Well, now that is true in a sense. But it's only true in a subsidiary sense. Follow me here. I'm not suggesting in any way that the Bible doesn't contain truth. It does contain truth, but it does not contain truth largely in a propositional sense, in a sort of proverbial sense. There is, of course, the Proverbs, which are unique in that way. There are other proverbial sections. But for the most part, this book right here is a book that's made up of hundreds, yea, thousands of stories. Thousands of what, everyone? Stories. It's a book of stories. Daniel in the lion's den, and, and Jonah in the, in the belly of a fish, David and Goliath. This is a book of stories. The, 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 the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, Noah and the ark, the feeding of the 5,000, the raising of Lazarus, the walking on water. This is a storybook. It's a storybook that tells a very specific story. It's not just a series of doctrinal propositional truths. It tells a story. And what Jesus is doing, this is so important, when Jesus is retracing or recapitulating the story of Israel, what he's doing is he's recapturing, you could even say rescuing the story from the religious leaders and thinkers of his day. The story had been hijacked. The story had been taken hostage. The story had been taken captive. And so Jesus is taking the story back. A similar thing needs to happen today. An analogous thing needs to happen today where, where, where the story of Christianity has been hijacked by religious-sounding people. 
The problem is, is that the way that most Australians and Americans and other people of the world are hearing the good news, the story, it doesn't sound like good news. Can somebody say amen? It doesn't, it doesn't sound like good news. It, it doesn't sound like something that is attractive, attractive and drawing and wooing. And so I believe, I am passionate about this, that the church, in fact, this is what I'm going to be speaking to the pastors about next Sabbath down there, 1,500 pastors. I can't wait to be there at the Southern Union Pastors Convention. I'm going to be talking about recapturing the story of Christianity and the story of Scripture. That's what Jesus is doing. He's, re, he's taking the story back. You have heard, but I say. You've been told, but I say. You've been taught, but I say. He's taking the story back. And he's not just taking the story back with his words. We're going to get to that in a moment. He's taking the story back with his actions. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, not just the religious leaders, but the religious climate of Jesus' day was wrestling with the massive cognitive dissonance, the, the, the discongruity between their belief about themselves and their reality. Their belief about themselves at the time that Jesus is there, Roman power is expansive, extensive, irresistible. The belief about themselves, the Jews believe, were the chosen people of God, were the covenant people of God. That's what they believe about themselves. They have believed that for more than a millennium. We're God's chosen people. We're God cho God's chosen people. But as we've discussed in this church before, the history of Israel actually tells a different story. The history goes something like this. In captivity to Egypt, which we've just talked about a moment ago, they would later go into captivity in Babylon, Assyria, Greece for a short time. Wrong. So their, their story is actually, doesn't sound like the story of a people who are specially favored by God. If you are specially favored by God, then why is your story an uninterrupted history of oppression and captivity by pagan nations? And so what's happening in the time of Jesus and even before the time of Jesus in what's called the, the, the Second Temple Judaism or Judaism after the building of the, of the Second Temple, there's different groups that are trying to, to make sense of the fact that we believe we're God's chosen people, but history and reality doesn't match up with our sense, our expectation. So here's what they're doing. They're telling a different kind of story. And there's about roughly four groups that are telling a story. And those groups are up here on the screen. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, and the Essenes. Everyone telling a version of the story. The Pharisees, we could say, and there is some recent scholarly uh, debate about this as to the exact role and nature of the Pharisees, but for our purposes here, um, being a lay context and a lay situation, we'll just keep it fairly simple and I think solidly biblical. The Pharisees, whatever they were, they were certainly traditionalists. They were passionate about Moses, they were passionate about the law, and they were anti-Rome. So, so the Pharisees' answer to the, dis, the, dis, uh, the, the lack of congruity between what they believe they are and reality is to say, we'll become super Jewish, we'll become more Jewish. They became very insular, they, they drew inside of themselves, they cocooned inside of themselves and became extremely passionate about the things that were idiosyncratically Jewish uniquely Jewish. And we find Jesus in the New Testament coming into conflict with these people. And he says again and again and again, the story you're telling, this isn't his exact language, but this is what he's saying. The story you're telling is not the story I'm telling. You're telling a story of Judaism that's not the story I'm telling. And he went so far as to say, again, this is my paraphrase of Jesus, your story is not correct. It's a different story. It's a better story. 
So the Pharisees were the traditionalists, they were insular, and they isolated, cut themselves off from Rome. The Sadducees were on the other end of the spectrum. The Sadducees were actually placed in power by Rome. They were the ones that had the high priest chosen from among their midst. There were a few elite families, educated families, connected families. They had control of the temple and they were used in a kind of vassal uh, puppet sense by the Romans to, to be the rulers of their people, which caused, of course, your, your sort of rank-and-file Jewish person, many of them, to relate to the Sadducees as Roman sympathizers and as sellouts. And certainly the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the New Testament actually says they hated one another because they're at opposite ends of the political uh, religious spectrum, right? Then you had the Zealots, which were kind of the Pharisees, but they didn't only become insular and sort of cocoony, they were very passionate about taking with force and with violence, taking Judaism back. We talked here a couple weeks ago about Judas Maccabeus, the hammer, who in the second century BC actually led a significant revolt against Rome. And a part of that revolt was that they were successful in securing for a century Jewish independence. Right? The zealots were the people that fancied themselves as in the lineage or cut out of the same cloth that Judas Maccabeus was, this great Jewish hero. Right? These are people that would take, if need be, swords and go and wage conflicts against the Rome. But this is, of course, an exercise doomed to failure. Because Rome was this grand, great, cruel, oppressive, expansive power. And these were just, you know, the Jews were a small, Palestine was a small precinct in the much larger empire of Rome, and they were easily squished and squashed. Yes, they did have a few you know, successes here and there, but for the most part, it was, it was an exercise doomed to failure. Those were the zealots, armed resistance. You might say the terrorists of the day. And finally, the Essenes were like sort of the hippies of the day, right? These were the ones who thought, we're gonna move out into the wilderness, we're gonna move out to Nimbin, right? We're going to move out to Nimbin, which is the local community out here, sort of a bunch of hippies out there. These are the guys that are just off by themselves, right, as it were, playing the drums and hanging out at markets and, you know, wearing feathers in their hair. You, you, you get the picture here, right? Not literally, of course. But these, these Essene communities were isolated communities, and they were, they were intensely spiritual and intensely passionate about a preservation of, of Judaism. But they disconnected themselves from sort of mainstream, which is why they don't show up in the New Testament. So now when Jesus shows up, when Jesus shows up and he's retelling the story and he's using new language, he has to be very careful. He has to be very careful. And if you've read the New Testament, if you're at all familiar with the New Testament, you've seen this. You get a feel for this. What happens is that Jesus has to be very careful that he doesn't sound like a Pharisee. He has to be careful not to borrow the language of the Pharisees or the methods of the Pharisees or the language or methods or approach of the Sadducees or of the Essenes or of the Zealots. And as you read the New Testament, especially the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you get this feeling that people don't know what to do with Jesus. Jesus will talk or Jesus will heal or Jesus will act. Jesus will do something and the people will go, what? That doesn't make sense. Are, are you, who are you? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus would give some enigmatic response. Are you a Pharisee? Are you a Sadducee? So they would ask him questions to try and compartmentalize him, to try to figure out who are you? 
Hey, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? The answer to that will clearly place Jesus in some camp. Hey, there was a woman, and she had seven husbands, and she died, and then in the resurrection, whose will she be? What is the great commandment in the law? In the days of Jesus, there were these strong rabbinical schools that were, that were vying for the loyalty of other Jews. And when Jesus comes on the scene with his healings and with his sayings and with his actions, people are trying to figure out, is he a Pharisee? Is he a Sadducee? Is he a zealot? He doesn't seem to be in a scene. He's, he's too communal. He mingles too easily with people. Who exactly are you? In fact, take a look at this. Back to Matthew chapter 7. Look at this. This is fascinating. Right there, Matthew chapter 7. Look at the last two verses of Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. And so it was, when Jesus had ended these sayings, that is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that the people were astonished at his teaching. Well, why? why were, what was the source of their astonishment? Not just what he said, but look at verse 29. Because he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. He taught them in a different way, in a unique way. There was something different about Jesus. Where do you put him? He's not following the party line of the Pharisees. He's not following the party line of the Sadducees. He's not, you know, advocating armed resistance like the zealots. Who are you? And you get this sense as you read the Gospels that people are just trying to figure out who he is. The disciples are flabbergasted. The, uh, the, the disciples of Jesus, the enemies of Jesus are flabbergasted. Even Herod and the Romans don't quite know what to do with Jesus. He's this like enigmatic, provocative, young rabbi floating from town to town, hamlet to hamlet, village to village, performing amazing miracles, saying proverbial things, teaching in parables, and healing people. He doesn't fit the mold of the messianic expectation of the day. And nowhere is this more true than in Jesus' opening words of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' opening words, so come with me to Matthew chapter 5 and look at this. So when Jesus, when it finally comes time for Jesus to approach Israel, he disappears in the Gospel of Matthew. He disappears also in the Gospel of Luke as well, but there is an appearance of a young Jesus in the Gospel of Luke at the age of 12 going to the temple. But for the most part, in the Gospels, Jesus like appears as a baby, then he disappears for a significant period of time, and he reappears as a man. Now there are a variety of explanations as to why that is. I'm not going to go into them right now, but, but they're, they're persuasive. They're very persuasive. So what we have with Matthew is, the last time we, we see Jesus as a baby in Matthew chapter 2, and then we see Jesus getting baptized as an adult in Matthew chapter 3. And you sort of say, hey, look, if this was a modern biography or even an autobiography, where's the intervening years? Like, what, what's going on here? So during that intervening period, Jesus, we can safely uh, assume, would have been a carpenter. Right? In the footsteps of his father, Joseph. He, he, he would have been a carpenter, and so he would have been learning the trade of carpentry, sawing and measuring and hammering and doing the things that carpenters do through his teen years and into his 20s. And he's, at, there was a period, something happened when he came to his late 20s, where, where one day, after years of working as a carpenter, first as an apprentice and then becoming more skillful, one day he would have laid down his saw, and he would have hung up his hammer, and he would have put away his measuring line, and he would have taken off his carpentry garb. He would have done all of that, not for the Sabbath, not for the weekend, but for good. Because he was not now going to be a carpenter. He was now going to become a rabbi. 
He was going to become a teacher. He knew that there was some signal. We don't have time to get into that signal right now. But there was a signal. There was something that he saw and that he sensed in which he knew it was time to stop being Jesus the carpenter, Jesus the son of Mary and Joseph, and to step out in a public sense, right, as a kind of debutante to present himself now as what he is. So he transitions. And Jesus would have had 20 years nearly to think about what it is that he would say in his first public address. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount of the New Testament, Jesus has had 20 years to think about what he's going to say. Next Sabbath, I'll be preaching, as I've mentioned here, to 1,500 pastors and their families. I have been giving considerable thought as to what I will say, but I've not been thinking about it for 20 years. Jesus knew that one day he was going to lay down his saw, he was going to lay down his hammer, and he was going to hang up his carpentry garb. He knew that he was going to become a rabbi, and he would have had a lot of time to think about when he becomes the debutante, when, he's, when he presents himself as Messiah, what will he say? He had a lot of time to think about it while working. And what he says is absolutely revolutionary. He's talking about a revolution. So Matthew chapter 3. In Matthew chapter 5, excuse me, beginning in verse 1. Matthew chapter 5. And seeing the multitudes, here he is, not Jesus the carpenter, but Jesus the Messiah. He went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying. And here it is. More than 20 years or 20-some years in preparation. What will he say? What will he speak into the hijacked story of first century Judaism? Will he say a Pharisee-sounding thing, a Sadducee-sounding thing, an Essenic thing, a Zealot-sounding thing? What will he say? Here he is on the mountain, the New Testament Sinai. And he opened his mouth and he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What follows from this is seven more what are called blessings or beatitudes. These, these first ten verses here of the Sermon on the Mount are called the beatitudes or the blessings. And they all follow an A-B pattern. Blessed are the, for they shall. Blessed are the, A, for they shall, B. A-B, 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 eight times. These are not just little proverbial sayings that are nice little drops of candy to be, you know, uh, consumed out of their context. Jesus is telling a very specific, very purposeful story here. And, and the story that he's telling is fascinating. The story that he tells, I want to show you. It's absolutely amazing. The first thing that he says is, blessed are the poor in spirit. This would have sounded like an absolute bomb in first century Judaism. Because the, 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 the sense of self-identity and of who you thought you were as a first century Jew was you thought you were spiritually superior. You were a monotheist, and not just any ordinary monotheist, you were a descendant of Abraham. You believed in the one true God. You weren't like them hated polytheists, them hated Gentiles, or even these pretending Samaritans. You were the Jewish people of God. You were superior. And so what Jesus says is like a bomb in first century Judaism. He says, blessed or happy are those who are poor in their basic spirituality. What? In what sense are we happy if we are poor in spirit? 
Your spiritual journey really begins when you recognize your essential spiritual poverty. Jesus retakes, he recaptures the story by saying, you're going to be really happy and you're going to be really blessed, not when you think you're spiritually superior, but when you see that you're spiritually bankrupt. You're spiritually impoverished. You're spiritually needy. You have a need. You're not awesome. You're, you're needy. You're impoverished. Jesus says the, the, the whole thing, 20 years to think about what he's going to say. What are the first syllables, the first words out of his mouth going to be? Blessed are the poor in spirit. You're really happy when you recognize that you are spiritually impoverished. You're bankrupt. And people are like, what? That doesn't sound like a Pharisee. That doesn't sound like a Sadducee. That doesn't sound like a, an Essene or a zealot. Notice what Jesus says next. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus says, once you recognize your spiritual poverty, the appropriate response is to mourn your condition. To mourn, the, the Bible uses another word for this, not here, but in other passages, the Bible will say this is called repentance. Repentance is to turn to orient yourself away from the old way. We're just coming up here on the new year, right? And there's magazines by the dozens, whether it's women's health or men's health or whatever kind of health you want, magazines by the dozens that are saying things like, new year, new you. New year, new you. Right? You're going to be a better version of yourself this year. And Jesus says, yes, you can be a better version of yourself, but you don't just go to a better version of yourself Instantly, no, you recognize your spiritual poverty and then you embrace that impoverishment and you mourn your poverty. Check this out. Mourning your spiritual condition happens when you grasp experientially your great need. One of the main reasons that people are so nonplussed about Jesus in today's modern secular age is that they don't sense that they're spiritually needy. They don't sense that they're sinners. We don't even talk about sin anymore. We live today in the normalization of any and every behavior that's imaginable. And so if we just, if we just flatline everything and just say, nobody's better, nobody's worse, everybody is uniquely virtuous, uniquely gifted, though, hey, th that's you and this is me and, you know, whatever. There's no sense of mourning. There's no sense of repentance. There's no sense of soul searching. This is a symptom of modernity. Oh, we're fine. I'm fine. You're fine. We're all fine. And yet Jesus says, as he opens his mouth to speak there from, from the New Testament Sinai summit, blessed are you when you recognize your spiritual poverty and not just recognize it, but when you embrace it and you mourn the depth of your spiritual brokenness. What happens when you mourn your spiritual brokenness? Take a look at verse five. Does that turn you into a morose and terrible navel-gazing person, it actually strangely has the opposite effect. Look at verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Wow, a really crazy thing happens. When we realize that we are all sinners in need of a Savior, that you are poor in spirit, and I am poor in spirit, and that you have a spiritual condition to mourn, and I have a spiritual condition to mourn, when, when we realize that we're all on the same playing field, then this radically transforms the way that we relate to others. What takes place is that when you embrace your spiritual neediness, it creates a necessary and authentic humility towards others. You're not better than. Neither are you worse than. You're a sinner in need of a savior. 
That's what Jesus is saying. You're happy when you recognize your spiritual condition, when you mourn that condition and you begin to experience it. And as soon as you realize that you're in the same boat that every other person is in, this changes your attitude, not one of superiority, not one of looking down, but one of looking across. And it makes us meek. It gives us an attitude of humility. Can somebody say amen? amen. Yeah, now watch what happens. Look at the very next verse. When we recognize and mourn the depth of our spiritual brokenness and bankruptcy, verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Ah, oh, now we cry out for that which we know we do not possess ourselves. If you have no righteousness, and notice he doesn't just say blessed are those who want righteousness, who desire righteousness, who think... No, he says, he uses two very visceral words, two very important words, two very biological, physiological words. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Wouldn't be many of us in this room that really know what hunger means. Wouldn't be many of us. Right, hungry for us is like, man, I haven't eaten for two hours. I'm starving. My wife's father tells the story of, of growing up in communist Romania and having one bowl and eight spoons for eight members of the family. And you might get guests that came over that were poorer than you. And so what did you do? You, you added water to the soup. He would talk about as a young shepherd boy, I've heard Violetta's father tell me stories on many occasions as a young shepherd boy who he would go out, he, had, he hadn't had food to eat for a day or two. And your stomach would just be in knots. I don't know that hunger. I have fasted at, on occasion for a day or two, but I've always had food that I could have you know, gone and gotten. But there's a, there's a different kind of hunger when there is no food and you don't know when it's coming. And Jesus uses that language to hunger, a gnawing hunger. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for that which they themselves do not possess, righteousness. Ah, this is a very unflattering portrait of humanity, let's be honest. This is not Buddhism. This is not self-help. This is not, hey, you're great. There's a light shining in you, and all you need to do is be enlightened and let the goodness shine out of you. There is an element of that. We'll get to that in just a moment. But what it's saying is you're spiritually broken. You're spiritually impoverished. You mourn that condition. This gives you an attitude of meekness towards others, and now you cry out for that which you do not natively possess, righteousness. Amen. Notice this. All of us are crying out for something that we know we need, and yet we know we don't possess. I am roundly persuaded, both theologically and also soci soci sociologically and experientially, that everybody at some level is aware that they are fundamentally in need of something outside of themselves. I believe that. Think, for example, of a case in point, Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous. Right? When you have an addiction, a soul-gripping addiction, whether it's to alcohol or some other thing, some other substance, what, what's the, 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 you have to recognize you have a problem in this 12-step program. And the very next thing is you have to call out, you have to, you have to say, I need help. I need a, a power outside of me, extrinsic to me, external to me, to come and help me. Right? We, we know this natively. I am persuaded that every person, whether Buddhist or Hindu or Muslim or agnostic or atheist, at some deep internal level is aware that they have a need that they themselves cannot satisfy. It requires an external satisfaction. And Jesus says, you hunger and you thirst for something external to you. And here's an amazing thing. Watch what happens next. Watch what happens next. Verse 7. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the merciful. How is it that we receive righteousness? Well, the, the story is going to be told both in the, gospel, in the gospel of Matthew and in the rest of the New Testament. The story is going to be told that you can receive righteousness, but that righteousness doesn't come to you by your good works or by your ability to do something or know something. Righteousness comes to you because of one two-syllable word. And that two-syllable word is mercy. God has mercy on us. God treats us like we don't deserve to be treated. And here's a really amazing thing. Here's a really amazing thing. Look at this. As recipients of God's mercy, we begin to learn to treat others the way that God has treated us. Amen. I love to hear those amens, those organic amens that are growing out of an awareness that the text is tapping into something that you know natively and experientially as a part of your own life. So follow what Jesus is saying. You're happy if you Recognize your spiritual poverty. You're happy if you mourn that condition. You're happy if this gives you an attitude of meekness. You're happy if you hunger and thirst for that which is external to your righteousness. And then you're happy if you receive mercy and then dispense mercy to those around you. Oh, this is exciting. Look at what happens as we continue to go through this beatitudinal ladder. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall what? See God. Look at this. Blessed are the pure in heart. The simplest way to say this is as we treat others, as we begin to treat others the way that God has treated us, our heart becomes softened and purified. Amen. A really crazy thing happens when you begin to treat others the way that God has treated you. With grace and mercy and sympathy and understanding and forgiveness. Someone has remarked quite accurately and quite sadly that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person will die. We know uh, medically, scientifically, the healing, redemptive effects of forgiveness. A few Sabbaths ago, I, I, broke, I broke spontaneously into singing the song from that movie Frozen, Let It Go. Right? Let it go. I'll do it again. Right? You just got to, you just, there's just, the only way to be fully free of your past is to forgive. Forgive does not mean that you forget. And forgive does not mean that you trust the person who has hurt you or harmed you or abused you. People sometimes come to me and say, Pastor, I've, 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 I, I, this person has hurt me, they've harmed me, and I can't forgive them. And I say, okay, well, talk to me about that. And in the course of talking, I've found on many occasions that, in fact, the person has forgiven their abuser, has forgiven the person that has harmed them, but they don't know that they've forgiven them. And here's how you can know if you have forgiven someone who has hurt you or harmed you or abused you. Here's how you can know. Ask yourself this simple question. Do I want the best for this person? Do I want this person to be saved? Do I want this person to come to repentance? Do I want this person ultimately to realize what he or she did and to change? And if the answer to that is yes, you have forgiven them. It does not mean that you trust. It doesn't mean that you invite them to babysit your children. But you can still hope the best for someone who has harmed you and hurt you. And a really amazing thing happens when we begin to treat others with mercy and with grace and with forgiveness. Our own hearts begin to change. Amen. Blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus said, for they shall see God. Look at this. Amen. Next one, I'm in verse 8. We're almost at the top of this beatitudinal ladder. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Jesus himself was the prince of peace. 
Jesus was the Prince of Peace. He said, he, he himself said on, a, on numerous occasions that the essence of what he came to do was to bring healing and hope. All of his actual healings of people, whether it was the sight to the blind or the recovery of, of uh, you know, the ability to walk to somebody who was lame or the healing of leprosy was always about something else. It was about a physical healing that represented a spiritual, emotional, moral healing. Jesus was bringing healing and Jesus was bringing peace. And as we, you and I, us, we, as we extend the kingdom of Jesus, we become like Jesus, agents of peace and of healing. And notice what the text says. It says, blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called the sons of God. The sons and daughters of God, just like Jesus was the son of God. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When we become passionate about extending the healing of Jesus, extending the forgiveness of Jesus, extending the words of Jesus, extending the message of Jesus, when we become agents of peace, we become peacemakers. And Jesus said, when you become a peacemaker rather than a warmonger, you're like me. Jesus didn't nail a single Roman to a cross. But he himself was nailed to a cross. Jesus brought this totally radical, revolutionary idea that the way to defeat violence is not with greater violence. It's actually with a kind of strong passivity that says, I will conquer your evil and I will conquer your violence, not by turning the volume up from 10 to 11, but by allowing you to do to me. And so Jesus crucified hanging on a cross is in fact in the position of the greatest strength in the universe because now he can win our loyalty, not with power, not with strength, not with might, but he wins it with, with his beauty, the beauty of his character. He woos us to him. He attracts us to him. And so when he looks the weakest and the most vulnerable, he is in fact the strongest. Amen. And finally, persecuted. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For those who radically orient their lives toward Jesus and his kingdom, persecution is inevitable. Persecution can come in many different forms. Even in Australia, there is persecution. Right? That persecution can come in the form of social isolation, social condemnation. There are many forms that persecution can come in. It doesn't have to be fires and guillotines and other, you know, sort of bodily harm things. Persecution can come from a family. Persecution can come even within a church. If you decide that you're going to... And you know what? I'm going to orient myself radically to the kingdom. I'm going to orient myself radically to Jesus. Persecution will come, not from people so much as from people that are inspired by the enemy. Paul had said, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Amen. So follow this through. Jesus said, you are happy if you recognize your spiritual poverty. If you then mourn that condition, you are happy. This gives you an attitude of meekness toward, this, toward those around you. You hunger and thirst for that which you do not possess, which is external to you, for righteousness. You begin to treat others with mercy the way that God has treated you. As you do that, you become increasingly pure in heart. As you begin to purify your heart and reach out to others with the good news of the gospel, you become a peacemaker like Jesus himself. And when you orient yourself radically toward Jesus and his kingdom, persecution is an inevitable consequence. Jesus is talking about a revolution, my friends. Blessed are those that are persecuted. And yet the most revolutionary thing of all is if you look carefully at the structure, the very intentional, purposeful structure of the Beatitudes, Jesus orients us to a verb tense that is hugely significant. And you wouldn't notice it if you just casually read or perfunctorily read over the passage. You'd have to look at the passage. You'd have to study the passage. You'd have to really think it through. But Jesus begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
He then says, they shall be comforted, they shall inherit the earth, they shall be filled, they shall receive mercy, they shall uh, see God, they shall be called the sons of God. Shall, shall, shall. Future tense, future tense, future tense, future tense. But notice this, very interesting, when he gets to the last one, verse 10, blessed are, the blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the very same thing, the kingdom of heaven. Verse 3 says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10 says, blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what Jesus is saying here is absolutely unmistakable. Whether you are like the thief nailed to the cross and all you know is that you are soon to die and you are in great need. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Blessed are those that, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then shall, 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 shall. And blessed are those that come to the end of that beatitudinal sequence. Blessed are those who have grown in their orientation toward God and His kingdom. And even if you do so, your, your gift is the very same thing. Mm. What Jesus is saying here is absolutely unmistakable. Wherever you find yourself in this beatitudinal sequence, wherever you find yourself on your spiritual journey with and toward Jesus, yours is the kingdom of heaven. There it is. Jesus says, wherever you are in your journey with and toward Him, yours is present tense, the kingdom of heaven. Amen. You might be a thief nailed to a tree, or you might be a radical persecuted missionary evangelist, or somewhere on the continuum in between, which is where we all are. You're on there somewhere, and what Jesus says to you and what Jesus says to me today is, yours, say it with me, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Talking about a revolution, Jesus' words and ways are entirely unexpected and unanticipated. Jesus revolutionized spirituality, and he did it in 10 verses. Amen. 10 verses. And what Jesus dropped, not just by his words, but by his actions, was a giant bomb of truth, a giant bomb of grace. This is why the Bible says in John chapter 1, he was full of grace and truth, right in the midst of first century Judaism, but not just in the midst of, of first century Judaism, in the midst of the world, so that every person now comes to the message of Jesus and to the man of Jesus. And every person has to decide what they will do with Jesus. And my advice to you, my invitation to you, my pleading with you is that you will take the man Jesus and rather than washing your hands of him and turning him over as Pilate did to be crucified, that you would, as Mary did, put yourself at the feet of Jesus, the one who said, happy are you, happiest are you when you recognize your spiritual poverty. Orient yourself toward Jesus. Your life will be better, your eternity will be better, your family will be better, your relationships will be better, you will be better. Because Jesus didn't come primarily to make his life better. He came to make your life better and to make the life of any and all who would follow him better. Amen? Amen. Amen. How many today want to orient their lives toward Jesus and his kingdom? Amen, me too. Father in heaven.